0: One of my favorite people um, in the world, um, Vicki Zancanella, and she started out as a teacher at, at Chris. Chico Christian. Chico Christian Pre- all right. You know why that's so hard for me? is because I was an administrator at Capital Christian, and so I always get the C's all mixed up. Yeah. Anyway, she um, she started out there. She's been attending neighborhood church for over 15 years, and she has been part of the group that graduates out our fifth graders because she's been part of fourth, fifth, and sixth grade as a leader, a small group leader in that, and a leader in neighbor kids, which is why she and I have connected so readily. And, um, and she works in communications all the time. So I am confident that what she has to teach and to communicate to you will be a blessing to you and um, certainly applicable. So, could you give a warm welcome to Vicki Zancanella? Thank you, Sue. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning, church family. Good morning, church family online. And we're just thankful for your being here today on this holiday weekend. And I realize Memorial Day weekend is that weekend that kicks off summer with pool parties and barbecues and camping. But really, we're celebrating that weekend to memorialize and remember, to commemorate those who sacrificed, the ultimate sacrifice. And for some families, this is a a weekend that's um, one to sit and really remember and reflect and mourn, even for a lost brother or sister, daughter, son, mother, father, and um, we just, it's something, again, we don't wanna forget. And I love to see the younger generations learning what that looks like. Um, Boy Scouts or different organizations putting flags on each of the graves and just remembering and, and stopping and reflecting. And so c- just goes with what we're going to talk about today. So um, one of the things this month that my husband and I have been doing is re-watching the series, HBO series Band of Brothers. And if you've never watched it, I encourage you, it's an amazing series um, that documents the exploits of Easy Company. They're the paratroopers that um, paratrooped in behind enemy lines on D-Day, and they basically marched across Europe towards the end of the war. And uh, this series explores just the range of events and emotions that this group of men went through and how they really became a band of brothers with that bond. And as I've been watching this series again, I can't help but reflect on the series we've been in here at church, The Three Kings, with uh, looking at David and Saul uh, through 1 Samuel so far, and the bond that David had with his men, his band of brothers, the, the events that happened, the exploits they had, the triumphs, the defeats, and that David had his fellow men fall to the sword beside him. And ultimately, he had his king, Saul, fall to the sword, as well as his brother, Jonathan, his best friend, Jonathan. Um, And David used poetry and songs to express those emotions and those feelings that came out of those really hard, hard situations, right? And David wrote many poems or songs, which were recorded in the book of Psalms. Now the book of Psalms that we have in our Bible were uh, a, just a collection of these poems and hymns and prayers that were collected, they think, after the exile into Babylon. They were pulled together, but they were intentionally ordered, intentionally put into five different sections or books in Psalms. If, if you read in your Bible, you'll see the titles the book one, two, three, four, five. But they were intentionally. Um, laid out. And if you get Andrew's briefing, this last week he put a link to the full Bible project um, overview on Psalms, and I encourage you if you haven't to watch that because it's a great overview of the themes and the intention of the book of Psalms. But most, uh, kind of the big theme, uh, there are two. The Psalms point God's people back to the Torah, the law, God's word, And they point God's people to the coming Messiah, the King, bringing in the kingdom of heaven. And so um, this morning, we're just going to watch a really short clip of the Bible Project video that talks about and highlights the two main types of psalms.
2: There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book. Which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration and they draw attention to what's good in the world and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time biblical faith is forward-looking looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about.
1: Lament and praise. When Andrew asked me to teach this morning, um, as he's gone at the um, Alliance Conference in Nashville, He said I could pick any psalm I wanted to. I thought, thanks, Andrew. That narrows it down a little bit. (laughs) There's so many of them. But um, I was thinking, man, there's so many great psalms of praise. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 96, sing a new song to the Lord, all the earth. Even 145, which Chris spoke on last week, is such a praise. But God kept bringing me back to a psalm of lament, a hard, agonizing psalm of David. Now, lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And it's that hard um, sitting in those raw feelings and emotions and crying out to the Lord And as I was preparing, I kept crying out to the Lord, why, Lord, why are you having me teach on a song of lament? I am not a feeler, I'm a thinker. I don't naturally go to my feelings, I naturally wanna think through and problem solve my way through situations. And my last inclination is to sit and feel those raw emotions. And honestly, there are times when I open up the Psalms Granted, probably with the wrong mindset, and I read it, and I think, David was such a whiner and a complainer. Like, every psalm, he's just crying out, complaining. And yet, God and my husband come to his defense pretty quickly and say, wait a minute. He went through legitimate, hard stuff. Those were real struggles he was going through, real emotions, real, raw feelings. And so, it reminds me that I need to sit and to feel and to cry out and complain. I need to lament. And so when I stop to give time to focus on the hurt, the hard, the injustice that we see in the world or even in our personal lives, man, I am a more rich, deep, compassionate, Person because of it, and so of course, I was thinking about psalms to teach. God kept bringing me back to Psalm 22, and in my mind, this is the ultimate lament. If you're not familiar with Psalm 22, or it's been a while, um, let me jog your memory. I say this is the ultimate lament because this psalm begins with, "My God, my God." Why have you forsaken me? These, if these words sound familiar. It's because these are Jesus' words as he was hanging on the cross being crucified. He quoted Psalm 22. Now, laments are typically the most emotionally charged of all the Psalms. They take us on a journey, though, they take us on a journey from pain and grief, and despair. They take us into the journey of crying out to the Lord, um, asking for rescue, asking for him to save us. Then there's always an acknowledgement of God and who he is and his power, his omniscience, his all-knowing, and his love. So lament, lament takes us from darkness to light, It takes us from discouragement to to hope. It takes us from disaster to redemption. And it takes us from despair to joy. So we're going to turn to Psalm 22 this morning, and we're going to walk through this together. Now, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. We know at the beginning the title says, For the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the morning, a psalm of David." But as we look at what we know of David's life, although there was a lot of hard, agonizing pain that he went through, the exact events described in Psalm 22, we don't actually find in David's life that they actually happened. And so there's just nothing that's desperate or um, detailed, and if you look at Psalm 22, as we're going to, you see it's, it's describing a man's death. So t- Psalm 22 prophetically describes events that would take place on the cross a thousand years after David wrote them down. It describes the agony and pain of the punishment of crucifixion 600 years before crucifixion was even a known punishment on the earth. Guys, these things weren't even thought of yet. And yet, Psalm 22 is a more accurate depiction, some would say, of what Jesus experienced on the cross than even what the Gospels show us. So, Psalm 22 takes our focus off of David and his pain and his life and what was going on with him, and it points our eyes to the Messianic King. It points us to Jesus. Jesus was called the Son of David. And he was labeled the king of the Jews. And so we're going to take our eyes off David and turn to Jesus this morning. So Psalm 22 is steeped with prophecy from the very first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. But I find no rest. Whew. Now, these verses are powerful, and Jesus did quote it on the cross. Some even think he may have been meditating on Psalm 22 while he was on the cross, and that um, we're, we're fairly certain he would have known Psalm 22. He would have had it memorized. And so as we look through here, um, there are 23 different prophecies that are fulfilled later that are listed in 22. I won't go through all 23 today. I'm going to encourage you to do your own research and look at those. But we're going to go through a few. So in the Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus made seven statements while he was on the cross. And this statement my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was statement number four. And think about it, any Jew who was in the area and heard Jesus say that, would have known he was quoting Psalm 22. They would have known Psalm 22. And you would think at that moment they would have went, oh, he is who he says he is. These are the exact words recorded in Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Elam Sabakhtanai, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was not a lament that was a lack of faith, this was an, a lament, a cry of bewilderment a little bit of a confusion of an unknown feeling because you see, Jesus was going to be separated from his father and he'd never experienced separation from the Trinity. He'd always been, his father was always with him as he says multiple times throughout the Gospels. In fact, his language here actually changes a bit. It changes from calling, um, my, saying my father to my God. There's a little bit of that distance of relationship starting here. And as the sin bearer who took on our sins on the cross, he was being separated because that's what sin does to us, right? It separates us from the relationship with the Father. And so Jesus was feeling the full effects of that. Now in the next few verses, we're going to look at, the psalmist establishes God's um, position and his position. So, verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, our, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they, put, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And when I look back at this, the I am a worm stands out to me. I thought, that's weird. I'm a worm. And I was reading, um, someone had said, if you read a verse in the Bible and you go, wow, that's weird, it's there for a reason and you should dig in a little bit more, because nothing's there um, without intention, so as I was looking at um, this, is describing himself as a worm, the lowest of creatures. If you look at a worm, it has no defense, it has no protection, it has no shell or claws or or teeth. It's completely vulnerable. It's vulnerable to um, the elements and those of us that you know step on them. Right. Well. If you look at this, I am a worm, God uses I am statements quite often in the Bible. The first time he uses it is in Exodus 3 where Moses asks him, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And then Jesus goes on in the gospels in his teaching to share many I am statements about who he was and John records them. Does anyone think of an I am statement? Right? I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can go on and on. The I am statements that Jesus shared. And and yet, this I am statement in Psalm 22 is a lesser known one. I am a worm. It's that showing Jesus' status, where he he just allowed himself to go for us. Interesting little tidbit. I want to just plug in here, and then I'm going to have you go and do your own research. But the word that is used here for worm is the Hebrew word for tola. Um, This word is, it means crimson worm or scarlet worm. I think I have it on the next slide. Um, this word of being a scarlet worm is because this type of worm actually is one that they would harvest, they would crush these worms, and the red dye they would use to dye their robes scarlet. And this worm's life cycle, when you look at it, doesn't just mirror what Jesus did for us on the cross with its red, scarlet crimsonness, right? There's so much more to this life cycle of this worm that mirrors Jesus, it's phenomenal. And it it surprises me and yet it doesn't because God is so intentional in all of his creation to reflect who he is. So I encourage you, take your kids, your grandkids, or just yourself, and research this week and find out more about the crimson worm because it's pretty cool. All right, let's keep going, verse seven. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Amazingly, these are the exact words recorded in Luke chapter 23. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Shake my head because it's so amazing how, how God uses his word. Verse 8 captures the words, He trusted in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And yet these are the exact words spoken by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes while they were watching the crucifixion happen in Matthew 24, 43. It's recorded that they said, He trusts in God, let God rescue him. Now, if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. These are the details that just blow my mind when I look at God's word and look at a psalm from the Old Testament a thousand years before the gospels were written, before those events actually happened, and yet God knew. Now, in the next verses in 9 and 10, um, it describes his relationship with God, "Yet you brought me out of the womb. you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God." That sense of always having relationship since the very beginning. The next section in verses 11 through 18, it describes now kind of the torture and the pain of the cross, the agony. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Eshan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouth wide against me. Now these verses are describing the state he's in. He's alone. His disciples have left. Everyone's left. But the next two verses aren't referring to a battle against bovines and felines and animals circling him, right? This is a very real spiritual battle going on that you don't see in the physical world that's happening in the spiritual world. Um, if you d- dive into more about what the bulls of Bashan were and we remember you know, that the enemy is called a roaring lion and so these are the real, real effects Jesus is feeling. Verse 14 goes on to explain More of the physical battle of the cross. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. We know that um, crucifixion victims would just, one of the effects was just sweating profusely, just pouring out sweat. We know for Jesus that started in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When he's praying and that sweat is just dripping and it's happening on the cross. All my bones are out of joint, the effect of being nailed to the cross and your full weight being pulled against your body, trying to hold yourself up, and those joints just being separated. My heart has turned to wax. One of the effects um, of a crucifixion is an enlarged heart, and it becomes really large and kind of a sack of fluid around it. And... um, Physicians and researchers think when Jesus was pierced with the sword on his side, that it pierced his heart, and that poured out, and we know it says blood and water poured out. He was poured out for us. Moving into verses 15 and 16, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd. It's a, a shred of dry clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. How dry that sounds. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, in verse 15, my mouth is dried up. This, is a, this description is basically describing thirst. If you've ever felt that deep thirst when you're going without water for a long time. And in John 19:28. One of Jesus' other statements on the cross was, I am thirsty. I thirst. Verse 16, dogs surround me. Now, it was common for Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. And we know who surrounded Jesus in his arrest, in his trial, and took him to up to Golgotha to the cross was Roman soldiers, Gentiles. They pierce my hands and my feet. In Luke 22:23, 23, it clearly states who crucified him, who nailed those nails through his hands and his feet. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one to his right and one, the other to his left. The Gentiles, the dogs, pierced his hands and his feet. Verse 17. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Wow, how specific. Cast lots for my garment. That's exactly what the Romans did with Jesus' robe. In Mark 15, it's recorded... When they had crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. This was not a common practice. This usually didn't happen. It happened with Jesus, and it was described in Psalm 22. So specific, so detailed are those verses in 15 and 18. Now, in verse 19, this is where the lament starts to shift a bit. It shifts here from um, a description of this intense torture he was experiencing. Now he's lamenting his request. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. These first 21 verses are all about the suffering and the asking for God to rescue. And yet, at verse 22, there's a very big shift, and we're moving into now from a lament to a praise. And now the focus is on the victory. Well, what happened between verse 21 and 22? Well, we... We have the privilege of being on this side of the timeline and knowing the events that happened between 21 and 22, Jesus on the cross, to the victory was the resurrection. And there's a clear shift here. Now, verse um, 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. This starts to be a praise because of the victory. And you will see in Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews records and documents that Jesus used these exact, exact words. In Hebrews, it says, He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Now, verse 24 to the end, verse 31. We're going to read the rest of it. For he has not despised nor scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts Live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, which is all of us, right? Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That last section, the shift is so clear from the focus on anguish of one man to the victory for the whole earth, all the nations, all the families. Everyone. So in verse 22 and 23 and 27, we get this picture of this movement from an inner circle outward to the ends of the earth. And even in verse 30, it talks about future generations. So not just physically on earth right now, but in the timeline for future generations. This salvation is for everyone. And that should sound familiar to you. Jesus uses this same illustration and call for his disciples in Acts 1, 7, after he's been resurrected and he's been on the earth for 40 days with his disciples, right before he ascends up to heaven, he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The same call. Now in verse 31, he ends with, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It is completed. It is finished. And in John 19.30, when Jesus gave up his spirit, he cried out, it is finished. Psalm 21 takes us from the lament to praise. It takes us from the ultimate lament, being completely separated from the Father to the victory. It is finished. It is done for everyone. Now, this beginning with separation, going to completion, For the generations and generations and generations. This week, I had um, heard some news that actually reflects this really, really well. And it's a story and a testimony I want to share with you this morning. Of speaking to the generations and to the ends of the earth. My friend Hoyon, she is um, actually like a daughter to us. She was an international student who came to Chico State 10 years ago, and we hosted her. She lived in our home for two and a half years while she did her master's program here as an international student, and um, we just came to love her, and she is one of ours. She's part of the family. But um, while Hoyon was here, uh, and she still is actually here in Chico, um, She got to um, get to know a small group, a small group of believers that have a little fellowship here in Chico, and they're the Chico Chinese Christian Fellowship. They are a small group of amazing Christians that love the word and love people well, and their whole mission is to reach out to international students coming to Chico State, to Chinese students. And also to the scholars, visiting scholars that come from China to teach at Chico State, they invite them every Saturday, 6.30, they have a gathering. They eat together, they break bread, and they read the word, and they fellowship together. Well, this is where Hoi accepted Jesus as her savior, and she was baptized. And for our family, it was a glorious day. It was just oh, Amazing. Well, her mom and dad, because she was here for such a long time, they wanted to come and visit. And those of you who travel internationally know that when you travel with a visa and you come internationally, you don't just stay for a few days. They would stay four months. And sometimes her mom would just use as much as she could of her visa allowance to stay like six months. And so her mom would go to these Saturday meetings. And her mom received Jesus as her savior and became a believer and was baptized and she would go back home to China, share with Hoi dad. Her dad was a little hesitant at first, but as he traveled and came to the group, he too accepted Jesus and was baptized. Just amazing. Their time here, God used it to the fullest. And as they returned to China, and even in the last two years, not being able to travel here or visit because of COVID, and Hoi hasn't been able to go back, it's been hard. She received news in this last month that her grandfather was really sick, and her and her grandfather have a very close relationship. Well, she couldn't go home, and so she's just praying, Lord, you know, heal him. And so they found out, um, it seemed like it took a while to find out, He, he had stage four lung cancer. And so... There was no probably coming out of this and she couldn't get there. So she just prayed and talked to her mom a lot and her mom um, was able to be in the hospital with her father and be there with him and she would try to share Jesus and he would get very anxious, very fearful because of the superstitions in that culture that he's lived with all his life. Don't talk about that. I I will die if you talk about that. That was his, I mean, it was anxiety and fear rising up in him and so she'd, she'd back off. And Hoi called me, and it was just, we knew it was close. And I said, Hoi encourage your mom. Keep sharing, keep sharing, don't give up. And it was really towards the end, and he was incoherent. And the doctors told um, Hoi mom, it's going to be a hard, a hard death. Dying with lung cancer is hard, and there's suffering, and it's going to, it might be ugly. And so she spent the whole night just praying, lamenting, crying out to God, for her father. And she prayed all night um, and she prayed for a window of opportunity to share one last time. And God gave it to her. And that morning, Grandpa woke up and he was coherent enough to nod and like shake his head and and, and communicate, but no words. And so Haalan's mom shared one last time and asked, do you want to make Jesus the Savior and Lord of your life? And he nodded his head, yes. And so his daughter prayed with her father. They prayed the prayer. She prayed it for him. And at the end, when she said amen, he audibly aloud said, amen. It is finished. He has done it. For a grandpa in China, in his last moments of his life here on earth, A generation, sharing with a generation, sharing with a generation, to the ends of the earth, from this small little community here in Chico, out to affect the life of a grandpa in China. And you guys, the other cool thing about this is that there was complete peace in the room, and he died in perfect peace. There was no suffering or agony or pain. What a testimony to this family, and I pray that the rest of the family would see that and hear it, and that it would impact their generations. So you guys, this is a display of God's grace. This is Acts 1, completely on display this week. I didn't plan that for, I was studying Psalm 22, but I was like, Lord, this is your moment of glory and of triumph for an international student to share her love of Jesus with her mom and dad and for them to share. You guys, this word is living and active. It says very clearly in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It also says in John 1:1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. You guys, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the living Word. And in that, Jesus takes us from darkness to light. Jesus takes us from discouragement to hope. Jesus takes us from disaster to redemption. And Jesus takes us from despair to joy. So I encourage you today. Be in the word. Be in the living word. When we spend time reading his word, discovering the revelations of a psalm written a thousand years ago, or a thousand years before the gospels, and how they align. God's plan is perfect in his word, pointing to the true king, the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven to come. Because you when you're in the word, God reveals more of his character to you and you can't help but be changed by it. When it, you let it penetrate your heart, penetrate and change your thoughts and attitudes, penetrate, it will take you from lament to praise. And as we're changed by the word, We can't help but it to overflow to others, right? We share the word. We share our stories, as Chris talked about last week, just stopping and sharing a nugget, um, a blessing with a younger generation or an older generation. And when we know the word and we're changed by the word, we use the word in our prayers as our sword to fight those battles. When we see the word, We're in the word. We're changed by the word. We share the word. We can see it, feel it, touch it. You guys, Jesus choosing to be forsaken on the cross for you and for me and for a grandpa in China changes how we do life. And so as we wrap up today, I'm reminded of the worship song that says, I am chosen, not forsaken. So remember, You are chosen, you're not forsaken, because Jesus chose to be forsaken. He chose Psalm 22. We think Jesus would have known it, he would have known that Psalm, and he would have known what he's walking into, and he did it. So today, if you need to take time to lament, do it. We have a chapel afterwards, take the time. If you need to choose to praise today, do it. Take the time. And today, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, today's the day. Take the time. Do it. And if you haven't opened your Bible in a while, and you haven't spent time in his word, do it. Just take a verse or two. And he will show you, he will change you. And in that, we can start in our little community here in Chico or wherever you're at, out and out to the ends of the earth. So I'm going to pray for us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you chose to go to the cross for us. Thank you that you are the living word, spoken, written down, and God, that you walked it out for us. So I pray that today we would let it soak in. We would let the pain and the anguish and the agony soak in. And Father, that we would be changed and we can praise you through it all. Amen. So I bless you this week. Bless you here as you go about your week, and I bless you online. Thank you for being here.